0: As uh, J.B. mentioned, and, and we just uh, remembered, uh, Steve and Katie are away uh, for a couple of weeks enjoying time with family, seeing family that they haven't been able to, uh, but God has allowed us to uh, have uh, Silas and Riley Thompson here today to uh, share uh, of their work. Uh, they do some creative ministry far away from here. Uh, Silas, a native of the Seacoast area of New Hampshire, and Riley, a native of, of Texas, uh, when they met and then fell in love and got married, and they knew that they both had a, a heart call from God to serve and wherever he wanted them to go. And the Lord said, you know, we need some people on the far side of the world. So they, they a couple of years ago, I believe, uh, moved uh, to Mongolia and do some creative ministry there, uh, working alongside some like-minded uh, friends and uh, meeting the people of Mongolia sharing good news and introducing and making famous the the name of our creator and sustainer so we have a chance uh to share in their ministry as a church family uh we're going to hear of their their work today uh, just open your hearts and your minds allow god to speak to you uh through silas we've invited them to come to one of our uh small groups uh after uh in the small group hour after this and so they'll be down with us downstairs and Uh, If if you're not part of a regular small group and just want to hear a little bit more and and maybe be able uh, to get a chance to ask a few questions, I invite you uh, to come join with us. Uh, Just find me after the service. I would love to help you uh, find that small group or any others, but Silas, why don't you come now share with us, and thank you.
1: Am I on, oh, there we go, okay hit me a little hard, okay, so uh, so yes, my name is Silas. Uh, my wife Riley is sitting uh, in the back row. she's a back row Baptist over there, and uh, she's actually sitting with my my parents. They came to join us uh, this morning, so uh, we're really, uh, really excited to be here. Uh, while we were driving here, Riley, uh, my wife, reminded me that uh, this was actually her first church that we that she came to with me uh, when we were traveling to, uh, to to raise funds. And so, a kind of good, good memory uh, there. I recognize some of you and have forgotten some names. So, I, I just want to let you know uh, when you come and say hi to us. It's, it's always awkward when we're like, "Oh, we should know you, but we don't remember your name." Uh, just, just say your name right off the bat. That way. Uh, there's no that. There's none of that awkward moment. But yes, uh, my name is Silas. I'm ex, I'm excited to be here. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me uh, to the chap uh, the book of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15. So what I'm going to do this morning is is I really just want to get into uh, the Word. And and so um, as you've heard, my wife and I serve uh, overseas in in Mongolia. We've been there for the past two years, and we we'd love to share that. With you, and so we're going to take the uh, the next hour during the Sunday school or the the small group hour uh, to really do more of that. So please come if you're uh, if you're available. Uh, But right now, I really just want to get into into God's word. Uh, As I was preparing this. Uh, if you know anything about sermon preparation, basically what you do is you uh, you do this the research first and the studying of, of scripture and you find out what it means and all that stuff. Once you put all that together, you create your intro and you create your uh your conclusion and the The, the point of an intro is to kind of get people. Ready to hear God's word. I've always, I've never liked that term uh, because, I mean, we should always be ready, but, but that's kind of what it is, it's, it's to kind of whet your appetite for what's about to come. And so I finished the preparation and the study for this, and I started thinking about the intro, and I, I said, what can I, um, what could I do to, uh, t- what can I say, what stories could I tell to, to bring people's interest into this? And then it hit me as I was reading, this passage is one of those passages that needs no introduction, it is so rich. There's so much in there. Today we're going to be reading about what it means to be a Christian. If you're here for the first time today and you don't know much about Christianity, you've come on a good week because today you're going to see exactly what we should be living like. I think so often we're portrayed in a way that is not true to Scripture. And sometimes it's the fault of our own because we don't live in the way that Scripture tells us to. If you're here and you, you've you been a Christian for a week or you've been a Christian for a year or 50 years, you're gonna, you came on a good week, too. You're going to get a lot out of this. Jesus tells us how we are supposed to live. But it doesn't just stop there. Jesus also tells us how we're supposed to make a difference in the world. I, I look out and I, and I see on the news and everywhere there's people all over the world right now that want to make a difference. There's people all over America that want to make a change in the world because they see... Uh, the corruption that's in it. But, but the problem is that we so often uh, try to make a difference in our own strength or in our own wisdom, and Jesus is going to tell us today that that's, that's not how we do things. If we do that, it, it, we're not going to make a difference in the world. Uh, a third thing Jesus is going to tell us today is how can we have true, everlasting joy? If, if you take all the, the desires and the plans and the thoughts of everyone in this room this morning, if you take all of them, it all really just boils down to to joy. We're all in search of joy. We flew all the way across the world to the other side of the world and found out that people in Mongolia are in the same search that we're in the search for. We're we're all searching for joy, but the problem is that so often we search for joy in the wrong places. So today we're going to see where we can find true joy. So... As we are now uh, prepared and ready to, to see what God has for us this morning, let's turn our eyes to the text, to John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. He is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we are are thankful for your word. What a what a blessing it is that we get to come and read your word together and to study it. I thank you for this opportunity. God, I I pray that right now that you would enable me to to step aside and that you would take front stage, that you would receive all praise, honor, glory, and power from this message and that I would decrease. Father, I, I pray that you would have your way with us that if anyone is here that does not yet know you, that you would open their hearts so that they can know you. If there's anyone here that is living in a way that is displeasing to you, that you would convict us. I pray that you would draw us near to yourself this morning as we read your word and help us. Amen. I love this passage of Scripture. And I don't, I don't want to insult your intelligence or anything like that, but uh, Jesus is, is using a metaphor here. When he says, I am the true vine, he is not literally saying that he is a literal vine. He is using a metaphor to bring about a, 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 a conclusion, an, an implication. And so what we need to do in order to understand this text is we need to understand the elements of the metaphor we have four of them here. You have first, Jesus says, I'm the vine. So you have Jesus, the vine. He says, my father is the vine dresser. So the father as the vine dresser. He says, you are branches. And then he says that our purpose is to produce fruit. So if those are the four things. The vine, the, the vine dresser, the branches, and the fruit. Those are the things that we need to figure out. So I hope today you'll be able to figure uh, what those things are and what Jesus is meaning by that. And I have one main point that I think Jesus is getting across here, and it's this. True disciples of Jesus Christ, true disciples live in an intimate, fruit-bearing, and joyful relationship with their life-giving Savior. True disciples live in an intimate, fruit-bearing, and joyful relationship with their life-giving Savior. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. What what does he mean when he says, what is he trying to get to when he says I am the true vine? Well, if if you're familiar with scripture at all, and if you're not it's okay because I'm going to explain it to you, but in the Old Testament, Israel is often uh, symbolized as God's vine. In fact, in in Psalm chapter 80, uh, the psalmist writes, you God brought a vine out of Egypt. Brought Israel the vine out of Egypt you drove out other nations and you planted your vine you cleared the ground for it it took deep root and filled the land and the mountains were covered with its shade the mighty cedars with its branches so we see here in Psalm 80 but but elsewhere all throughout the Old Testament that that Israel is symbolized as this vine so when Jesus says that he is the vine he is adopting this imagery and applying it to himself One commentator says, Jesus declares that one's standing in the people of God depends no longer on genealogical descent from Abraham, but on one's vital connection to himself. To be a part of the vine, one must be connected to Jesus. Now, Jesus is also, so he's making a connection with Israel, but he's also contrasting himself with Israel. If you notice, he says, I am the true vine. Now, and now, if there's a true vine, that means there must also be a false vine. So, so how is Israel a false vine? Well, if you look elsewhere in Scripture, in the, the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, uh, the Lord is talking through, through Isaiah, and he's speaking about Israel, and he, he once again symbolizes Israel as his vineyard. And he says, I came to my vineyard, I took care of it, I, I, I did everything I needed to do, and I came to it expecting grapes. And what I found was rotten grapes, was was bad grapes. You see, you find out in in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that Israel time and again turned away from God's purpose for their life. They turned away from from him and sinned against him, rejected him, and turned to other gods. So when Jesus says, here, I am the true vine, what he is saying is that all that Israel was supposed to be, I am. Where where, Where Israel fell, I have not fallen, I am not falling, and I will never fall. I am the fulfillment of Israel. So get what what Jesus is saying here. This is the gospel we preach. It is only through Jesus that we can be saved, that we can be God's people. It is only through him. It's not through genealogical descent. It doesn't matter if your parents or grandparents were believers. Jesus says, you must be connected to me. I am the vine. He goes on to say, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the father, takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear more fruit. So Jesus is the vine, the father is a vine dresser. As a vine dresser, I mean, if you're a gardener, if you're dressing vines, your, your whole purpose is to make sure that those vines produce fruit, right? Uh, my wife loves to, to plant. She loves to plant vegetables or flowers or anything like that. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny because she likes it just for the, the beauty. And so we have flowers all over our house. But when I look at it, I'm like, what are those actually doing for us? right? Like, they, they might look good, but I mean, and they might maybe provide, provide a little bit of oxygen, oxygen, I guess, so that we can breathe. But I'm much more of the person that, like, I'm growing tomato plants so that I can have tomatoes. Or I'm growing peppers so I can have peppers. Like, I, and that's what God wants. He looks out and he says, I'm not, just, I'm not just saving you to just, like, watch you grow. No, no. I want fruit from you. I want you to produce fruit. And so it says, every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes. And oftentimes the way he prunes so that we, may, we bear more fruit, the way he prunes is through discipline. So many times we are caught up in a, in a sinful behavior and uh, God has to discipline us in order to remove that from our lives. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about how discipline is something that we don't often like. When it's happening to us, it, it's, it's painful. But then it says that when it's done, it will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God often disciplines us. So, so let me ask you, is there any area in your life that God is right now pruning out of your life? Is there anything that you're holding on to that God says, no, 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 no? I want fruit. This is this is making you making it so that you're not fruitful. So let's get this out of your life. What area is that? Jesus is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. But, but what about the branches? It says that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And uh, he, Jesus expands a little bit more on this in verse 6 when he says that every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In verse 6 he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now this is this is a topic that um, we often don't like talking about, but Jesus here is talking about hell. He is saying that when God looks to his vine and sees the branches that are not producing fruit, he will remove them. Those that are, that are, that are those types of branches, those fruitless branches, will spend eternity under the righteous wrath of God. That's a hard truth, but it's still truth, and we must proclaim it. But is Jesus saying here then that if you are a Christian and you're just not doing enough, then you're going to go to hell? I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And there's multiple scriptures in, there's multiple verses in scripture that say that once you are saved, you are held by Christ, that he will hold you forever, forever, that you will be preserved by him. But I just want to go to one just to see this because I think it'll also give evidence of what Jesus is saying here, kind of back it up. So turn with me just one page over to John chapter 17, verse 12. Jesus is speaking to the Father here, and he says, While I was with them, while I was with my disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. So he says here, not one of the people that you gave to me, I have lost. But then he goes on and he says, Except the son of destruction, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. When he says the son of destruction here, he's talking about Judas. And if you are familiar with the Gospels at all, you know that Judas may have hung around Jesus. He may have spent time with Jesus. He may have even called himself a follower of Jesus, but he was never a true believer in Christ. So what get the difference that Jesus is making here? He's not saying that there are fruitful believers and fruitless believers. He's saying there are fruitful believers and false believers. Jesus says, If you look at your life and you do not see fruit, you are not a believer. Now, there may be times where we are stagnant in our faith. We may have times where we turn away. But Jesus says if you are a Christian, if you are connected to the vine, you will produce fruit. So this is a warning to all of us here who call ourselves Christians, including me, including your pastors. If we look at our lives and we do not see fruit, there is a problem. We may not be Christians at all. We may not be connected to the vine. So at this point, it can be easy for us to be tempted, and I think it was probably easy for the disciples to be tempted, to start looking at our own works to earn salvation. When Jesus says this, we might start thinking like, okay, that means i got to do everything I can to produce fruit. And Jesus, right off the bat, knocks that out and he says, no, no, no. no. He says in verse 3, already you are clean. This word clean there could mean prune. It's a similar word in the Greek. Already you are pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Does he say you are pruned because of your church attendance? You are pruned because you acted good enough? No. He says, you are pruned because of my word. It's my doing. It's the word of the gospel that he has preached throughout his entire life and that we continue to preach today is through the gospel alone. That we are saved. It is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It is is not our own doing. We do not look to our own works to earn salvation. The disciples then and we now are not attached to the vine because of our own doing. It is by God's word. It's by his gospel. So church, we must never look to our own works. We must look to the vine. We don't look to our family, to our church attendance, to our Bible reading, to any of our good works. We look to Jesus. It's only through him that we can be saved. So Jesus is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. And and all who declare themselves to be Christians are branches. We have a a basic understanding. We're going to get to the fruit in a little bit. But right now we have a basic understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. So now we have to ask the question, why did he give this metaphor? What's the purpose? Well, he wants to teach his disciples something. And that brings us to the main point of the text. Do you remember it? True disciples of Jesus live in an, an intimate, a fruit-bearing, and joyful relationship with their life-giving Savior. So what I want to do with the remainder of our time is to continue reading in Scripture and see this, how, how Jesus draws this out in Scripture. And we're going to look at each aspect of that. So first, we'll look at, a, at an intimate relationship. Second, we'll look at a fruit-bearing relationship. And then finally, we'll look at a joyful relationship relationship. So first, an intimate relationship. Starting in verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So Jesus here is saying, I want to have an intimate relationship with you. I am in you and I want you to be in me. And I don't know if you were uh, were humbled at all as I was reading this, but I know that as I study this, I'm extremely humbled because in it, Jesus says without me, you can't bear fruit. Are, Are you ever discouraged by your own lack of faith in Christ? When you read the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self-control, when you read those, do you feel a little bit convicted or discouraged? Man, I, I, don't, I don't love the way that I know I should. I'm not as patient. My, my wife will tell you, I'm not as patient as God wants me to be. What about those, those sins that keep coming up in, in your life? What Jesus is saying here is that apart from him, you will not produce the fruit that you desire. You will not produce the fruit that God desires. So that means that it doesn't matter how much internet software you put on your computer to keep those images away. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how many uh, um, anger, anger management courses you go to. It doesn't matter how many times you promise, I will never do that thing one more time. It's all in vain if you're not abiding in Christ. But Jesus, on the contrary, says, if you are abiding in me, you will bear much fruit. You will bear, bear fruit. You will start to see your love and your patience grow. You, you will start to see victory over your lustful or anger heart, anger, anger-filled heart. You will start to see more love in your marriage if you abide in the vine, if you abide in Christ. He doesn't stop there, though. He says, apart from me, you can do how much? A little bit? You can do as much as your own strength can muster up? No, no, no. He says, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. We look out in the world today and we we see the corruption, the anger, the hatred. Riley and I moved to Mongolia and we see the same stuff there and and we want to make a difference in the world. We want to see the world become better. But Jesus says, apart from him, we can do nothing. That means that it doesn't matter what, what political stance you have. It doesn't doesn't matter if you move to the other side of the world. It doesn't matter. None of that matters if we are not abiding in Christ. If Riley and I do not abide in Christ, our going to Mongolia is in vain. It will not have everlasting impact. It does not matter, but with Christ, we will produce fruit. So, the key word here, then, is abide we need to abide so what does it mean to abide in Christ one theologian named uh, DA Carson he says abiding in Christ is continuous dependence on the vine it's constant relying upon him it's persistent spiritual absorption of his life it's resting and relying on who Christ is and all that Christ does It's resting and relying on his strength instead of our own. It's resting and relying on his wisdom. When Jesus says in his word to do something, it doesn't doesn't seem to click with us. We're like, why do I need to do this? My my flesh feels like I need to do this. It's saying, God, Jesus is wiser than I am, so I'm going to obey even though I don't see it. It's trusting in him. So, So then how do we do that? How do we continuously depend upon Christ How do we constantly rely on him? Well, I think Jesus here gives us three ways to do that. Three ways. Starting in verse 7, the first one is this. Continuously depend on Christ's word. Continuously depend on Christ's word. Jesus says in verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Now, this kind of threw me for a loop a little bit because earlier, if you remember, he said, if you abide in me, and I in you. So then I started questioning why does Jesus say here, if you abide in me, and now he says, instead of I, he says, my words. And then it, it just kinda of hit me. Well, because Jesus Jesus and Jesus' words are saying the same thing. He's not changing to a different thing. When he says, if, you, if I abide in you, and when he says, if my words abide in you, he's meaning the same thing. So a commentator writes, Jesus speaks of his words abiding in his disciples, which requires them to be exposed to the words of Jesus, to examine them, to analyze them, to give attention to them, and to consider his words until they understand them, and then to take the pains to obey them. Let me ask you, this isn't talking just about your quiet time in the morning. This is speaking about in Psalm 1, where it says, The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. It's like Christ's words should be lodged up so deep in our minds that, that it's the natural thing to go to throughout our day. That when we face trials, that when we face difficulties, when we face temptations, any, anything like that, we look to Christ's word. Let me ask you, if, if your marriage is struggling, where's the first place you turn to? Is it Dr. Phil? Some uh, influencer on the internet? Or is it Christ's word? If your marriage is flourishing, where do you turn to? We turn to Christ's word. Is Christ's word on your mind, and in your heart, day and night? Are you dependent on his word and his word alone? So first, we need to depend on God's word in order to abide in Christ. Secondly, we need to rely on prayer. Rely on prayer. D.A. Carson, again, he says, the fruit in the vine imagery represents so if you're, if you're wondering what the fruit is this, is, this is what it is. The fruit in the vine imagery represents everything that is a product of effective prayer in Jesus' name. Continue in verse 7. Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Jump down all the way to verse 16 in, in chapter 15. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. Isn't it funny that in both these instances where the promise is given to us that if we ask in Jesus' name, it will be given to us. The immediate context is in bearing fruit. Our prayers should be that God would bear fruit through us and through other believers around us. Those, one commentator writes, those who abide in Jesus and in whom the words of Jesus abide are then invited to ask whatever they wish. The disciples are commanded then to pray just as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your will be done. This is not a resignation to whatever some detached, deistic, unconcerned fate has determined. Rather, This is a declaration of war on unrighteousness, on injustice, on unbelief, disobedience, and dishonor. To pray for God's will to be done is to pray for his name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come, requiring the crushing of idols, the tearing down of strongholds, and the charging of the gates of hell. This is what our prayer is meant to be for. So how how does this play out? This means when we read scripture, when God's word is abiding in us, we read things like Psalm 67 let the nations be glad, Lord. Let them rejoice and sing for joy. And we see that and we say, Lord, there are nations around the world. There are people groups who have never even heard your name. They cannot be joyful because they do not know you. Lord, may your glory be known in that people group. It's when we read things like in 1 Peter where it says, Be holy because I am holy. And we say, Lord, I am not Holy. I am not living a holy life. Lord, produce the fruit of holiness in my life. We read things like, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we say, Lord, I do not love my wife in that way. I do not have that sacrificial love for her, but Lord, you promise, you promise that whatever I ask in Jesus' name, you will give it to me, so produce the fruit of love in my life so that I can love my wife. As we read God's word and are, are, are in it, we pray for him to produce fruit through us. Are your prayers like that? I think so often we, we tend to, to pray for very trivial things in our life. We pray for things like injuries or, or health concerns or financial concerns, and yes, we need to pray for those things. Jesus says, be anxious of nothing, but in everything, uh, not Jesus, Paul, be in everything, bring everything to me with supplication. So yes, we should pray for those things, but in this context, in John chapter 15, he is talking specifically about praying that God would produce fruit in our lives. So let us do that. So we abide by uh, depending on God's word, Christ's word. We abide by relying on prayer. And then we abide by depending and resting in Jesus' love. In Jesus' love. Jump down a little bit to verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I also love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is, this this verse, committed to memory. Jesus says, the order here is very specific. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, how did the Father love the Son? He loved the Son. He loves the Son perfectly. There is no flaw or or hint of, of immorality or corruption in that love. He loves the Son unconditionally. He loves the Son eternally, from eternity past to eternity future. He loves the Son. He loves the Son wholly. There is no lacking of it. He loves the, so much, the Son so much. He created the world through His Son, for His Son. He saved. The reason why we are being saved is for Jesus' bride. His son's bride. He loves the son. And Jesus says, just as a father loved me, so I also love you. And then get this, he says, abide in my love. Abide in my love. It's not my love for Christ that I abide in. I don't rest and rely on how much I can muster up love in my life. There's a song, and it's a really great song. It's, it's, a, it's, oh, how I love Jesus. You know that song? Okay, when, when you hear that song, that's, that's great to say, but I want you to turn it a little bit also and say, oh, how Jesus loves me, because that's what Jesus is saying here. We rest in his love. You know why? Because when I rest in my own love for Christ, it doesn't cause me to sing for joy. If I look at my own love for Christ, I fall. I I can't do it. I don't love him the way I should. But he loves me perfectly. Do you realize there's nothing we could ever do to make Jesus love us more? And there's nothing we've ever done that makes him love us less. So we rest in his love. And he says, "If if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, is Jesus saying here that he, didn't, he doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, you will earn my love. He says, you will abide in my love if you keep my commandments. I, I want to give an illustration to, to see how this works out. Uh, I love Thanksgiving. Does anyone else here love Thanksgiving? Okay, now I'm going to be very, very honest with you. Uh, I do not love Thanksgiving because I get to spend time with my family. Okay? That's not it. I don't even love Thanksgiving. I'm not this spiritual. I don't love Thanksgiving because it's a time where I can give thanks for all the blessings in my life. Now, that's a good thing, but that's not why I love Thanksgiving. The reason I love Thanksgiving is because of the food. And if you're being honest, that's why you love it too. Okay? <laughs> yeah. I know, I know everyone. You, you can say whatever you want, but that's the reason why. And now, during Thanksgiving, everyone's family kind of gets together. Everyone brings their own dish, right? And as a five-year-old kid who looks at this table with all these types of food, our eyes turn immediately to the apple pie. I love, love apple pie. So, so you come in, and you see this whole display, and, and as a five-year-old kid, I turn my eyes and I see the the apple pie on display, and I turn to my dad and I say, "Dad, can I have a slice of that pie?" And my dad says, "After dinner, gotta wait." And in my five-year-old mind, I do not understand why I have to wait. I think, man, that pie looks so good. Why do I have to wait till after dinner? Why can't I just enjoy it right now? But I obey my dad. Does my obedience to him, does my obedience to him cause him to love me anymore? No, no. My my obedience is demonstrating that I recognize that he already loves me. And if he loves me, he's going to do what's best for me. And if he knows a lot more than I do, which he does as a five-year-old kid, he knows a whole lot more. If I obey him, I'm resting and relying on his love. That's what Jesus tells us to do. He tells us to say to be obedient to, to him even when it doesn't seem like it, it fits us because we recognize that he loves us. So we live in an intimate relationship with our life-giving Savior. Secondly, we live in a fruit-bearing relationship, a fruit-bearing relationship. Jesus says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, the whole reason we are saved is to produce fruit. Don't believe me? Let's look to verse 16 again. Verse 16, don't ever trust me, trust what God's word says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? That you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should abide. The reason God has saved us is so that we produce fruit for him. It's the whole purpose of our life. You say, well, what does is, what is our fruit bearing do? You remember, fruit, fruit, the fruit that we bear is directly uh, reliance on prayer. What we pray for, we pray for this fruit. So what, is, what then does our fruit do? What then does our holy life for God do? What then does our obedience to him do? Well first he says, Jesus says it brings glory to God. If you think of this, this image of a vine again, you will see if someone walks by a vineyard and they look out and they see a bunch of vines with no fruit on them. Who are they going to blame? The vine dresser. They're going to say he's incompetent. So when we bear fruit for God, we we, we bring him glory. It shows that he is a competent and loving vine dresser. That he provides us with everything we have. So it gives glory to God, but then secondly, it gives evidence to the world. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you claim to be a Christian, people are always inspecting your fruit and they have that right. Jesus gives it to them. Why? Well, because his fathers have nothing to hide. Our fruit testifies to the truth of the gospel. Jesus who died must have risen again because he clearly lives inside of us and he produces fruit through us. Because we are connected to Jesus, we will produce fruit. So it gives evidence to the world. So we live in an intimate relationship with our life-giving Savior. We live in a, uh, a fruit-bearing relationship with our life-giving Savior. And we live in a joyful relationship with our life-giving Savior. Jesus says in verse 8, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Joy is an unmistakable mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So often I think it's very easy to think that we have to make the choice between God's glory or our gladness. That we have to make the choice between uh, between, between our holiness and our happiness. And what Jesus is saying here is that God does not oppose our joy. He is for our joy. Not only that, but he is our joy. We so often search for joy in so many places except for Christ. And yet Christ is saying here, I am your joy. So church, let us pursue joy in the only one who is able to give it. The world needs to see where they can find true joy. L- listen, th- th- your neighbor does not need to see you driving an awesome car, or having the best house or the best job. They're not going to wonder why you have joy. What they need to see is, is when your car breaks down or, or, or when you lose your job, you still have joy because your joy is not in your, your possessions. Your joy is not in your job. Your joy is in Christ. Th- your neighbor needs to, to see that. Mongolians need to see that Riley and I do not trust in ourselves. Our, our possessions, our freedom in America, they don't give us joy. What gives us joy is Jesus. So let's pursue joy in the only one who is able to give it. So what does a true disciple look like? What is the Christian life? Well, it is an intimate fruit-bearing, and joyful relationship with our life-giving Savior. So look to him. He is the true vine. He is the one who gives life. Abide in him. Rest on his word. Rest on prayer. Rest on his love for you. And produce fruit. Live out of his love. And live in joy. Be satisfied in Christ. Be satisfied. What I want to do to close is I want to pray for, for you, for this church, um, and I also want to pray for our, our church in Mongolia, if that's okay. Um, like I said, after the service, we'll be out here uh, in, in the hallway, and then we'll be in the, uh, the small group session as well if you want to join us there as well. Um, let's pray. Father, we, we, we thank you. We thank you for your salvation for the joy that we have in, in in Christ, for the life that we have in him. Help us to abide in you. Help us to have an intimate relationship with Christ so that we can bear fruit through him. We can have joy through him. I pray that you'd help this church today to to live in a way that pleases you, to draw near to you, that each person would leave here today with a closer relationship with you. And I pray for, for our friends in Mongolia, our brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for them. I thank you that even though we aren't the other side of the world, we can still pray for them. And I ask that you would draw them near to you. I ask that you would produce fruit for them that they would share the gospel with their friends and neighbors and family, that they would see disciples being made and and being grown. I pray that even now you'd be preparing the harvest there for your glory. Yes, you know, I pray. Amen.